The two passages read today are the traditional passages for Lent. Uh, one's from Isaiah, one's from Joel. And uh, Isaiah's is, is stunning. It's beautiful. It's a wonderful picture. I hate to break it to you, I'm preaching from Joel. Yeah. Slightly more heavy passage. Do we really want to hear a passage like this? It's the question we have to ask ourselves. Do we take seriously this call to return to the Lord? Not just with some of our lives, not just with the outward garments of repentance, but with our whole hearts. Not with put-together hearts, but with torn hearts, rent hearts. The prophet Joel, in this passage, he's sounding a siren, a loud, disruptive, prophetic siren. The word of God came to him, and he's speaking to the nation of Israel, and a moment of decision is at hand. In chapter 1 of Joel, it described how they had been recently ravaged and plagued, uh, brought to utter destruction by locusts. But Joel, he sees this just as a glimpse, a small picture of the imminent judgment of God. Uh, this is the theological focus of Joel's book, the day of the Lord. It's coming and it will be swift. The day when God will come with fury and power, with roars, he'll uh, overturn the entire cosmos. The day when he'll reorder everything and finally put everything back to rights. Eliminating all evil, wickedness, suffering, and death. Rendering judgment to all. And Joel, his point in writing is to make one point crystal clear. Nobody can escape that day. Nobody. Not even the people of God. The people who heard Joel's message lived in an odd place, in an in-between place. They've suffered. And they're told that it's actually because of God's judgment. Not that all suffering is from God's judgment, but in this instance, this was God's judgment upon them. And this is the past which is still lingering into their present. And it's not fully resolved. It's likely still painful, and it surely brings up a lot of unanswered questions. But they're also told of a future where God's judgment will be even greater. So much more furious than they'd had, that they better align themselves with God immediately. Because if the day of the Lord descends upon them unfavorably, they will long for the day of the locusts. And so by looking to the past and to the future, they have to decide how they're going to live in this in-between place, how they're going to respond in the present. They will either listen and surrender to the word of the Lord, or they will continue in their own ways. But a decision has to be made. And God tells the people very clearly how he wants them to respond. In Joel uh, chapter 2, verse 12, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Yet, even now. These are the first words declared by God in the book of Joel. Yet, even now. They should be deeply comforting words. No matter what has passed, no matter what mistakes have transpired, no matter how bad or bleak the situation may look, no matter how your soul may be marked and tarnished by what you've done, yet, even now, come back to me, says God. Dirty broken, confused, frustrated, tired, ravaged by locusts, 
despairing and hopeless, yet even now, return to the Lord. God beckons the entire nation back to himself. Elders and children and nursing infants and brides and grooms, everyone must return to him. But he doesn't just want part of them. He doesn't just want their meager lip service and torn garments. He doesn't want the traditional wardrobe of repentance, ashes and sackcloth. He wants more. He wants their whole hearts. And this is why I think we have to ask ask ourselves and seriously consider, can we return to the Lord in this way? Because our hearts, they're, they're fickle, they're fragile, they're divided, they're chaotic, they're unpredictable. At times they seem to be under our beck and call, and at other times they seem to have a life of their own. But mostly the latter. And this is why the prophet Isaiah, or sorry, Jeremiah tells us, the heart is de- deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? You know, the heart, our hearts, deceive us. And they're so good at deceiving us that we don't even know they're deceiving us. Isaiah, he says, we'll we'll call what's good evil and what's evil good. You know, we can hear, you know, in Vancouver, if you live downtown or near a hospital, you you hear ambulances and sirens all the time, fire trucks, police cars. You know, they rush by us and they, they temporarily disrupt our current plans. They get in the way, you know, of point A to B. You know, and for a moment, if we're honest, if we actually think about what's taking place before us, We're grateful that the sirens aren't coming for us. You know, the sirens, they're for somebody else. And sometimes we might even say a quick prayer uh, for whoever they're for to make up for this inherent selfishness that the sirens expose. You know, thankfully it's not me, it's someone else this time. This is often how our hearts treat the prophetic challenges in Scripture. They're not for us, they're for somebody else. Our hearts manage to find ways to stay disengaged or only slightly engaged as to placate our minds, you know, with a false comfort. We think we're immune to the prophetic indictments. After all, we've trusted in Jesus. But let's just think for a moment, you know, about one of Jesus' more uncomfortable sayings in the Gospel of Matthew. You know, people are standing before Jesus on that future day, boasting about all the great things they've done in his name. And he responds to them. Depart from me. I never knew you. When we hear this, we quickly think to ourselves, obviously he's talking about other Christians, not me. But shouldn't this strike at least a little dose of, if not a healthy dose, of fear in our hearts? The prophetic siren that Joel sounds, it rings for us, it pulls us into this Lenten season, it grips us and it forces us to ask, you know, will we return to the Lord with our whole hearts? It forces us to ask if we'll be among the people in God's refuge on that day of judgment. But God, he doesn't call us back to himself asking for our hearts to be perfect and clean. He just wants our whole hearts, even our messy, weakly beating and broken hearts. Because God, he doesn't love some future version of Of us, he loves us as we are. He doesn't ask us to clean ourselves up to return to him. He just asks us to return to him fully as we are. But it's not just with our whole flawed selves that we're to return to the Lord. It's with rent, torn hearts. It's not just with imperfect hearts that God wants us to return. Uh, He knows that even when a whole human heart is offered to him, 
The best he's going to get is this weakly beating heart in desperate need of a transplant. And yet he still wants that whole weakly beating heart. He still wants that weak heart to be torn even. But how are we to rend our hearts? How do you rend a heart and not your garments? How do we allow our hearts to truly break so that our response in returning to God, it's sincere and not merely lip service or going through the motions? Joel writes, return to the Lord, your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. and He relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent. Joel, he calls Israel to return to the Lord, your God. This is their God. It's the God they've known, the God who has known them. It's it's personal. It's not this abstract conception of God. And despite whatever sin may be in their midst, whatever judgment may be upon them, despite their unfaithfulness to their promises, God remains faithful to them. He is their God. And note how Joel says, return to the Lord your God for. He gives us the true reason and motivator for returning to God, which is the character of God. If you want to return to God with your full heart, first it means admitting that we have weakly beating hearts, hearts that are tarnished by many things. But if we want our weakly beating hearts to be torn still, the breaking comes by gazing upon who God is. If we want true repentance, then it's not so much a response elicited by our effort to mourn over our brokenness. Well, that can certainly help in the process. True repentance is a response to the revelation of God's character. In other words, if you want your heart to rend, gaze upon the face of God in Jesus. Look and see the gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting of disaster God that he is. See how completely other and holy he is. And see God in Christ walking steadily towards Calvary, to that cross for us. And as you do, you will see exactly who you are in light of who God is. John Calvin brilliantly illustrated this. He says that when we look around at stuff in midday, you know, we think ourselves endued with a pretty good sense of sight. You know, most of us, at least. Uh, yet when we look up, you know, to the sun. It forces us to confess that our perceptions aren't as strong as we think. In discerning terrestrial things, we can hardly look. It's this way, too, for spiritual realities. You know, when we do not look beyond the earth, we don't seem all that bad. We might even consider ourselves pretty decent and good people. One might even say righteous, wise, and virtuous people. But if we raise our sight beyond ourselves, to God and his goodness and his righteousness, his wisdom and his virtue, we see ourselves in an entirely different light. It's not enough to evaluate ourselves on our own terms. Even if we fall short of the standards we impose on ourselves or the standards that society imposes on us, it will not produce the type of contriteness that is pleasing to God. Nor will it do any good for me to tell you how sinful you are. It won't even necessarily get my heart in the right place, let alone your hearts. Tearing 
Our already weakly beating hearts only happens in a way that is pleasing to God when we lift our eyes beyond ourselves and to God himself. When we look to him and we actually see him. And the response this elicits time and time again in the scriptures is fear. A holy, reverent, but terrifying fear. A flat out falling on your face sort of repentance. Now this might sound a little dramatic, but it is the scriptural vision for acknowledging who you are in light of God. It doesn't need to be dramatic or emotional, but it does need to be sincere. It tears our hearts apart. It should make us fear a holy, righteous God. It should also cause a deep, weighty sorrow. Because we see that in turning away from God, we've turned away from the faithful lover of our souls, who's who's so consistently given us his love, who has so freely and fully and consistently loved us. So how is Israel then to respond to Joel's prophetic warning? What are they to do? They're to be a community intertwined with repentance and belief. They repent of their misgivings and their failures, their sins, but repentance is also the act of returning to God. And a belief in the God who is merciful and who will relent from judgment upon them. Who will give them refuge in the day of judgment. Repenting and believing has always been the way into God's kingdom. When it comes to this Lenten season, we're called to remember that we never get a bank upon our past faithfulness. The message of Joel, it pulls us into the present. It calls us to a place of responding to who God is and grappling with the imminent day of judgment. It calls us to rend our hearts, not just with our lips, but with our entire lives. We're supposed to run to God. We're supposed to return to him with all that we are, all our brokenness, all our frailty, all our sinfulness bursting at the seams. We're supposed to run back to God, even though the initial image of him will break our hearts, because the full image of him will restore our See, Lent, it's not this season about what we can give up. Chocolate or meat or television or Facebook. Uh, Although fasting from these things can be helpful and even necessary. Lent is a season about responding appropriately to God. As the Lenten canticle reads in the BCP, uh, the goodness of God leads to repentance. O come, let us worship. You should never overlook that. It's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. It's the goodness of God that breaks our hearts. So this is a season where we prepare our hearts, where we prepare our realities to make room for the power of Easter, the power of the resurrection that will come. And while fearing the day of judgment can be appropriate, I want you to hear me, this isn't the point of the Christian life. The point is gazing upon the face of God in Christ. So when we truly see who God is, we more truly see who we are. And when this leads us to fall on our knees, this is true repentance. The Lenten season is a time to keep our eyes fixed upon the revelation of God in Jesus. Especially as we meditate, meditate upon Christ as he embarks on his journey towards the cross. We keep our eyes fixed on him. And he illuminates we're broken and we're flawed and we're sinful and we need to be amended and we can begin to feel it in our bones that we need the power of the resurrection. So as difficult as Lent can be at times,
So sobering is Lent can be at times. Lent is ultimately a time that prepares us to become more fully the people of Easter. The people who end up obtaining the promises later described in Joel. People filled with God's spirit. The people with God in their very midst. Like the audience for Joel's message, we live in an in-between place. We've met Christ and we wait for his return. And so we have to decide, how are we going to live in between the times? How are we going to live in the present? And so we must continually become a a community of, of deeper repentance and deeper faith. We must allow God to reorder ourselves to make more room in our lives, more space for Christ to be present. And so I want to invite you to resist truncating your repentance. It's easy to stand up too quickly. It's easy to go through the motions without truly grieving. It's even easier to ignore it altogether. You know, in just an hour, we might even forget that we're in this Lenten season, a season of repentance, by humbling ourselves in this way, by committing to participating in Lent, By gazing upon God and his beauty and his love and perfection, we will be driven to our knees and we will find ourselves exactly where God wants us. So don't stand prematurely or presumptuously. We don't want to stand when we think we're ready to stand or standing when we've assessed that we've repented enough. Ultimately, this would be boasting in our own strength. We want to find our place on our knees contritely, in weakness, knowing that we cannot stand before God on our own. And so we wait on him to raise us up with Christ. We wait on him to let us stand assured in his presence because Christ's great strength. So we want to stand in the power of God through the resurrection. As Paul writes to the church at at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 through 9, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Yes, this is a season of focused repentance. But we also have the profound hope that God will ultimately raise us up. The season is to anchor us more fully and truly in what it means to be a Christian. We see the face of God. We fall to our knees in response to his goodness. We repent and believe in his son, and we wait upon God to make us more fully become the people of Easter.